Okay, before we get started on the message, I want to cover something I've been ruminating, reflecting. Ruminating. Uh, ruminating, yes, ruminating. That's not like arthritis or anything. Uh, um, and I was asked to clarify uh, salvation. And also, uh, the last time we met, I know we ran out of time with Terry, and I needed to cut it off. I needed to end it because I want to remain on schedule. I don't want to go over that. Uh, but saying that, you know, I probably owe her an apology for just stopping it so quickly. But when it comes to the actual doctrine that was being discussed, I am immovable. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when it comes to certain things that I do and I believe, I'm very passionate. And when it comes to doctrine that is an error, I will stand up and pull out a sword. Uh, That's my job. I I think I am built for that. And uh, I know that sometimes, uh, I guess that can be a little abrasive, especially when you pull out the sword and you start using it. And so I wanted to make sure I covered this idea of salvation, at least wrapping it up uh, and getting on to the next study, which tonight is going to be baptisms. Now, as far as clarity is concerned, this idea of salvation and what we're supposed to do and if we leave, if we take off from the church, are we saved? And as a pastor or as an elder or as a deacon or as a home fellowship leader, we are never, uh, as part of the church, to offer any kind of assurance to anybody who leaves the church. We are not supposed to turn to them and say, you know, it's all right, take time off. You know, if you need a year or if you need a two-year period to just separate yourself from the body because there's a lot of mean people in the church, just go ahead and do it. I, I would never counsel somebody to do that. The Lord puts us together for a reason so that as iron sharpens iron, man sharpens man, and man referring to humanity. And that's the purpose of remaining together. Now, that is not pleasant. But as family members, and we are of the family of God, we are the bride of Christ, just as you would in a household, you may have disagreements. But you're supposed to be able to refer and defer to what is right, what is moral, what is correct, what is good, what is just. The only way to grab a hold of those things is to know the Scripture. And then you can stand firmly, and you don't have to be movable. You can be immutable. You don't have to change what you believe just to accommodate some, somebody or some organization just because you want them to feel better. Uh, this past week or so, I had somebody to, um, I had an opportunity to share, talk about God. And this person... Um, has their own views. And I told him, well, let me back up. He said he tries to live his life every single day as if it was his last. I said, well, that's, that's good. I said, but if you don't believe in Christ, what good does that do you? Because you're only here for a whisper. And I was very direct with the individual. I said, 
you know, the evidence has been presented to this particular guy. He has had Christians show up in his life ever since he was young, just one after the other. Has a cousin that's in the Episcopalian church, and he's real high up, and, or, uh, excuse me, a cousin. And he's been in different churches, and he's got a sprinkling of it, but he, he just doesn't like the church, you know, because there are a bunch of hypocrites in the church. And I kind of raised my hand and said, well, I'm one. You know, I, and the church is full of hypocrites. And I said, I, I've met with pastors over the last 20 years, 800, 1,000 of them. And I, I can tell you, I told him, I can tell you that every one of them, to some degree, is a hypocrite. And we recognize that and we ask for God's grace and his mercy. But if you don't ask for it, you will not receive it. And this was a case where the individual, he didn't want to go to the church. He wanted to have his own church. And I said, so you have created God in your image. What you think, what you like, what you agree with, that's how you're going to worship God. And then he started talking about other gods. And I said, well, which God would you prefer? Would you prefer one of the gods in Hinduism? Would you prefer Buddhism where there really is no God? Would you prefer the Muslim god Allah where it says you can beat your wife on your bed if you choose to and you can kill all unbelievers? That's a whole other subject right there. But I, I, I went on, I said, what about one of the cults? What if the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons, do you want to worship one of those gods? I said, you say that there are so many stories and so many gods that are out there that you want to just have a potpourri that you make up by yourself. I said, Jesus Christ. No, then he said, you know, if somebody died and came back from the dead, then I might believe him. And I said, well, somebody did. I said, it was Christ who did that. And I said, he was, his resurrection was witnessed by over 500 people at one time. I said, it's well established that he, in fact, rose from the dead. And he said what it's like. And he gave us a choice, a choice to believe or a choice not to believe. So I, you know, I wasn't mincing words. I just said, if you don't believe and you don't become the disciple he asks you to be, you're not going to heaven. And you might say, well, wait, does that mean I have to be a disciple in order to get to heaven? What that means is if you truly believe, you will be a disciple. You guys are here. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys, now I can do this from the pulpit and have people pack their guilt trip bags and, you know, but you, you can come alongside, put your arm around the individuals who are not here and say, come with me. Let's learn about the ways of the Lord because we're going to be there forever. And he's asked us to do this. And so when it comes to doctrine, once you start applying yourself as a disciple, you better know what you believe. They told me that in seminary. They said, you better know what you believe because people are going to come up and question you and they're going to want to know what it is you believe and whether their beliefs come in line with that. And so it is necessary that not only do I know these doctrines, but you know these doctrines as well, and we can all stand unified in what we believe and defend the faith for, from those who would attack it. Now, according to 1 John chapter 2, there were those who were in the church, and he's dealing with antichrists, teachers inside the church. And he says, I'll read it to you in First John chapter 2, Dear children, this is the last hour as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now, this is specifically referring to the people who are of the spirit of Antichrist who try to move into the church and raise a ruckus and siphon people off for themselves. And he's, they're being told by the Apostle John, they left. Well, if they left, John is saying they were never part of us. Now, I think I explained this the last time, that if somebody leaves the church and just says, you know, I'm kind of done with that, that was a phase of my life. And this guy that I talked to, he said he he has known several people that have done that over their life. And I told him, well, they have no assurance that they are truly saved because the Lord will keep them and they will persevere to the end. And that's how we know who are, are those that belong to the Lord. And so John says with these teachers, with these leaders, with these false shepherds, with these wolves in sheep's clothing, they left. I believe the same thing is true with those inside the church who anyone might consider rank and file that aren't in leadership. They just decide to take off. We are to offer them no assurance that they are saved. We are to encourage them, get back into the church. Christ has called you to be a disciple. He has called you to learn the elementary truths of the Christian faith, according to Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says the elementary uh, truths are the laying on of hands and baptisms and uh, the dead and the resurrection and repentance from dead works. All of those things are basic 101 for the Christian. He says we need to know these things. Now, this is being backed up, and I'm not going to read the whole thing by Luke chapter 5. It's also in Matthew, I believe, chapter 8, this parable of the sower of the seed. And remember the the four types of soil. You have the rocky path or the hard path. The seed falls in the path. The seed is the word of God. The birds come, which is the evil one, and takes away the word of God to where it never takes root. That person is obviously rejecting the gospel, stepping away. Uh, Modern-day people that would um, be considered uh, one of these individuals where the word of God has landed would be... um, um, Oh, I'm trying to think of his name. The guy who just died that uh, wrote the books that was a great debater out there. He was on the tip of my tongue. Well, Richard Dawkins, he's one. He has heard the word of God. He rejects it. He says, get it out of here. He doesn't let it plant and bring forth fruit. If you've ever listened to him, a famous atheist. So, And then there's two types. One type of seed falls in the ground. It germinates and it brings forth leaves it doesn't bring forth fruit how long the person is in the church before it is choked out by the weeds that grow up around it we don't know it could be a day it could be 10 years it could be 20 years then there's this other group that because of persecution that comes along they dry up when persecution gets here and i believe we're heading in that direction in this country where it is wrong to be a christian if you just keep track of the news and what is taking place in the news Christianity is becoming the plague of our country. And there are people that mean to shove it to the side and make no mention of the founding of this country and all the principles that are gleaned from the Bible that are put into place for our sake and the recognition of God and who he is. We're getting away from that. And so when that persecution comes, there's going to be people in the church that are going to exit. And they will have been here for a long time. And you might retort by saying, well, they were serving. They were doing great things. They were a deacon or they were 
doing worship or they were ushering and they did that for years and they'd just gone away. Well, that fruit was probably a false sense that you were given that they are saved because anybody can do good works, right? Look at the Mormons, how they take care of each other. You would say, obviously, they're carrying out the love of Christ. You know, they're caring for each other, and they keep their family units close together. And, you know, the morality of that group is great. But morality doesn't get you into heaven. Doing good works doesn't get you into heaven. It's the faith that you possess. And so if you persevere to the end, you have salvation. If at any time you reject yourself from the church, then you might as well just say, well, are you, am I really saved? And you want to do this fruit inspection. And if you are angry at the people in the church, now pastors get the brunt. They become the whipping boys. That's just par for the course because you're speaking truth. And when you speak truth, as our flesh grows, we don't like the truth and we retaliate against it. That's why if I speak about abortion or homosexuality, people get offended because they have friends that are homosexuals or somebody has had an abortion and they don't like to hear it. And they will say, you talk about that too much. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a one-horse uh, pastor. I try to talk about everything there, but there are certain hot-button topics that people just don't like. And so when it comes to somebody being in the church for a long time, this idea that they fall away, it doesn't mean they lost their salvation. Now, there are some scriptures that seem to indicate that. I'm not going to argue that. If that's the case, you know, all you need to do is go to the person and say, okay, are you being disobedient? If you're not in the church, are you being disobedient? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Do not forsake the gathering together of the brothers, as is the habit of some. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I see the day approaching. And if anybody just says, I don't want to be in the church, what are you doing? At the very least, that individual is being disobedient. If they're being disobedient, what does God say about your prayers? He doesn't regard your prayers. And the scripture actually says he doesn't hear them. I believe he hears them, but he pays no attention to them. He just let, it's kind of like in the vernacular of our day, talk to the hand. You know, you just, you're just talking to this. You're not, it's not even getting to my ears. Even though you would say that to somebody in jest or being sarcastic, you still hear what's going on, but you're not responding to what they're saying. And so uh, King David said, if I regarded sin in my heart, he would not have heard me. He would not listen to me. And so at the very least, somebody who says, I'm checking out from the church because those people are mean. They're hypocrites in there. I don't see them doing what they're supposed to. And that's why I'm out of here. Well, I'm sorry, but God says you are to remain. And as you see that, do something about it. Encourage and one another to love and good deeds just as pastors are supposed to do. And, and, and encourage everybody to be on the right path and to correct what is wrong and do so with all grace and mercy extending to the person. If we do that, we're doing our job. If we don't do that, we are not being those disciples that Christ has asked us to be. And so anybody who exits, we encourage them, get back into fellowship. Now, to make an establishment here that I believe if you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. In other words, he's the one that holds us in place. 
He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us. Now, who can break a seal? If you understand what they were talking about back then, the only person that can break a seal on a scroll was, or to, on a letter is the person who, is, who it is intended for. If somebody breaks that seal, they have violated the trust that the individual who sent them to deliver the scroll that they have entrusted them to, they have broken that trust. And so the seal was not to be broken. God has put his seal on us, which is the Holy Spirit. The only one who is worthy to break open that seal is God himself. That's the one who is the recipient of us, the salvation, right? And he said, it goes on to say, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, warranting what is to come. What's wrong with that? It's not the word warranty. Warranty runs out, right? It's a guarantee what is to come. That's what scripture says. It's a guarantee. Now, um, if you purchase something at Hagen that was a textile for your house and it failed, after October, you won't be able to take it back to the Hagen up on the, uh, La Cañada up there next to Walmart. It's going to be closed after October. I just asked them today. November 24th? They said, no, she said... Oh, Starbucks is closing. Okay, November 24th. (laughs) That's important. Starbucks is closing. Okay, so you wouldn't be able to take it back there because it was only warranted, and the warranty is only good for as long as they're in business. Same thing with a guarantee. If a company gives you a guarantee, like an iPhone, they give you a guarantee that... For 30 days, it's going to work, and if it doesn't work, take it back, and you can get a free one, as long as they're in business. God is not going out of business. He's going to stay there forever. And so if he guaranteed what is to come, what did he do? Go to you and take his Holy Spirit from you as a deposit? No, he's not going to do that. So that's why I believe you can't lose your salvation. But the person who has all the right words, you know, this lingo can be memorized. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hosanna, you know, all of these Christianese words and phrases that we are accustomed to that the world would not understand, the world can easily pick them up. They can understand what those are, but it's not genuine. And there are going to be those who are in the church who are not genuine. We are told that with the parable parables of the kingdom. Remember the mustard seed, it's planted and it grows to be the largest shrub in the entire garden and what comes and lands in its branches. The birds, and the birds are representative of Satan or evil. So there is evil inside the church as it exists. In every church, there's going to be someone at some time, maybe several people that come in that are doing the work of the enemy, and they're being divisive. That's one of the people that the Lord hates, and it's the person he hates. It's not what they do. He hates that too. But Scripture says, I hate the individual that is divisive. And so we know that there's evil inside the church as well as those who believe. And those who believe will persevere to the end. He also reiterates this in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. 
He says, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus, and this actually talks about the apostasy. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion, if you look up that word in the Greek, it's apostasy, occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction and so we are told that there is going to be an exodus from the church that precedes the man of lawlessness that there is going to be some movement that takes place worldwide where people are going to exit the church now i believe in the last days this began at the uh, time of Pentecost when the church began because that was the last days. There are going to be people that come in and they're going to apostatize. They are going to leave the faith. And if you read this in context, it would seem to indicate that there are those who can actually lose their salvation. And this is a debate that nobody is going to win. The only thing we want to do from this point, knowing what Scripture has to say If somebody is outside the church, do all you can to bring them back into the fold. And I'm not talking about just this church. You know, in 10 years, I may not be here. You may be here, but I may not be here. Or you may not be here, and I may still be here. I don't know what's in store for the future. But whoever you run across, whoever you talk to that is a believer, say, get in the church. Stop and... As nice as you can, but it's hard to be nice when you're reprimanding somebody, isn't it? You turn to them and say, get back in the church. At the very least, you're being disobedient. At the very most, you're really not saved. And so get back in. Experience the fellowship. Experience all that God has for you. Not only that, will it be good for you because it will bring you great assurance of your faith. And that's what Paul was telling Timothy. You'll have great assurance of your faith if you serve him well. If you don't serve him well, there is no assurance. And you walk around going... Am I really saved? I've been going to church all these years, but I don't feel like I'm saved. Reach into the lives of those who are around you and serve them. Yeah, those sinners, those hypocrites, the ones who will bite you in the back, the ones who will do you harm. And believe me, I am just like that individual. Just a little anecdote. I was driving down the road the other day. It was towards evening, and the Charger game was just starting. And I was out working, and it was dusk, and I pulled on to Highway 52 from, not Convoy, I forget which street it was, what the dump is, I think it's Convoy. I was turning on, heading east on 52, and there are two lanes that turn and go into one. And you know how cars are supposed to merge, like the cogs on a clock, or, you know, they just fit together. Yeah. <laughs> The woman next to me, I could tell she was heading to the Charger game because she had a Charger jersey on and her window was open. And so I'm letting people in front of me just fit like cogs while she wanted to get in front of me. And of course, it's my road. And so I didn't want her to get in front of me. You know, so at first, I'm not even paying attention. I'm just drinking my... I have a drink there and I'm drinking my drink and my hat's kind of down. I'm just focusing on what's going on and i'm close to the car in front of me and she just i'm getting in here and i you know and i'm going oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> in my heart i 
the wickedness just came right up. I told Patty about this and I go, you know, I wanted to do her harm. I, I was thinking about turning my vehicle in. I mean, just horrible things following her and eyeing her, you know, I mean, just horrible or evil things. And I stopped myself and I go, I am evil. I am, I'm just so bad. Why, how can I, doesn't she know it's my road? How can I do this? You know? And so my heart is filled with that wickedness that is in there. And then I, I calm down. I go, I need to give her grace. I did just mercy and grace. You know, just that's all I'm going to think about. And then my mind wanted to go back to that. Well, this is what I would do if I had, you know, no, I had to stop. You know, I was fighting that on the inside. So from the pastor on up to the saint who just prays inside the church pews or seats, we're all the same. And that's where we extend the grace and the mercy to those who are gone. But you must stand firm and say, don't be apart from the church if you were a believer, again, and I'll close with this, at the very least, you were being disobedient. At the very most, you were unsaved. Okay, so I wanted to establish that. And I don't believe you can lose your salvation. So I, I, I want to set those things in order. And if somebody wants to go in that direction, I believe God calls us to stand up and say, no, I don't believe Scripture teaches that. And I stand on the authority of Scripture. This is what Scripture says. And we have to stay away from our personal experience. I said I was going to close with the last thing, but I'm going to give you this too. Uh, The um, theological teacher that I had in seminary, his name is Donald Thorson. And he wrote a book. It was the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And I've mentioned this in the past. And he says, there are four things that every individual and every church uses in order to conduct themselves as a church. And those things are tradition, reason, experience, and scripture. Individuals that use experience to guide what they believe about God. There are particular churches that do that. Can you name at least one church that does that? Experience. Pentecostal church. They go by the experience. If you judge what's going on with the tongues... The whole congregation will speak in tongues at one time. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 14? Don't do it. Two are at the most, three should speak. And if there's not an interpreter, they're to remain silent. And so if you talk to somebody in the Pentecostal church, they say, brother, you need to get in touch with the Spirit. I have. The Scripture says, and the Spirit is the one who guides and teaches us in Scripture And so that's, you know, the Pentecostal church. There is a church that is guided by tradition. We've always done it this way. What church is that? Catholic church, Episcopalian church. Those churches hold to, this is the way we've always done it. Eastern Orthodox church, the Orthodox church in general. They have a tradition and that supersedes scripture. Then there is reason. Do you know what church would hold to reason? And they they wouldn't say this, and it is my judgment on this, but they would hold to reason more than Scripture. Who? Uh, Christian Christian science? Yeah, I I would say that they would. 
Now, there are certain people, for instance, um, the hyper-Calvinists, they would hold to that. They would hold to reason. Even though Scripture says that God is not willing that any should perish, they would say there are people who are destined to burn. Well, that's taking your own reasoning and putting that above Scripture because Scripture doesn't teach that. Now, at Calvary Chapel, the order in which we do it is Scripture, reason, and tradition and experience can kind of flip-flop. Well, what have we done in the past? What can we learn from that? And so that's the tradition that is there and experience. Well, what has happened to us in the past if we have done that? So those two can flip. But Scripture is number one. And the Lord puts Scripture above his name. That's the top. And so that's why I believe we should do the same thing. And so if somebody wants to argue with you about them not going to church, just appeal to Scripture. Stand on that. Now, you won't get converts every time. And people are going to hold to what they believe. All we're required to do is let them know. That's not what Scripture teaches. And, you know, I love you, but you're making an error. And I would like to see you fall in line with Christ. And we can do that in a loving way and not being condemning to the individual that's there. Okay, baptisms. Let's pray. huh? Father, we ask for your blessing on this idea of... uh, learning the elementary truths of Scripture, and we're coming to baptisms, and I pray that you would enlighten us all concerning how many baptisms there are and what each one consists of. So, Father, we'll trust in you for the teaching and the guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, Eric, just to make sure, you talked about heaven and hell in prayer, right? Okay. I want to make sure I'm staying online here so baptism now you have an outline did i get the outline i i gave all the outlines away i want to make sure i'm following it okay water baptism Uh, water baptism is a baptism of repentance matthew chapter 28 verse 18 through 20 i think you guys are familiar with it i'm just going to read it then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we are to make disciples and baptize them. This is something that is an act of obedience. Now, I just recently covered water baptism and the salvation thing. Does it bring salvation? And I'm going to dwell on a couple of the little rabbit trails I can deal with water baptism. But let's first go to why don't people get baptized? The first one that you would fill in there is their ignorance. Or they're ignorant. Not in a, a bad way. They just haven't learned yet. Nobody has instructed them. They got saved. And now it's like, okay, now what? Well... Christ says, get baptized. And being baptized means it is a sign to those who are out there that you are part of the covenant of blood, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In the Old Testament, what was the sign that you were a Jew under the Mosaic covenant? Circumcision. In the New Testament, it is baptism. Okay? And if you're ignorant of that, you just don't know. And so... That's why you're supposed to teach on it. You're supposed to have a baptizing uh, event every once in a while. And some people do it every week. And some people have a baptismal 
right in their church and they do it during service and they'll bring them up and dunk them up there and they'll give them a change of clothes or put a, a white robe on them and it just get baptized. That's what we're supposed to do. So the person who doesn't do it may be ignorant. Secondly, procrastination. Uh, some, even some Calvary chapels, one Calvary chapel in particular that I know of, they required people to go through several classes before they got baptized. I don't see scripture teaching that. If somebody expresses faith, get them in water at the first available opportunity. Wherever you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, as long as they're willing, get them into water. It can be at the Colorado River. It can be at the beach. It can be in somebody's pool. It can be anywhere where somebody says, I desire to follow Christ. I want him to be my example, and I want to be an example for him to the world. I want to be his disciple. I need to get baptized. Okay, don't procrastinate. Just get baptized. Uh, defiance. Believe it or not, there are Christians who will not. They're just stiff-necked because it may mean something that, well, that means I'm fully committed. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to be is fully committed. Whatever he asks us to do, that's what we're supposed to do. But there are always Christians that will say, ah, I'm not doing it. Don't, don't tell me I need to do this. I'm going to do whatever. That's a real humble attitude to have. But that's what they have on the inside is this defiant heart. And, you know, does it mean they won't go to heaven? Well, no, but at the very least they're being disobedient, right? So Christ says, if you're being defiant, humble yourself before the Lord, and he has the ability to raise you up. So just be humble and don't be defiant. Uh, That's for anybody who would just say, I'm not going to do it. Fourthly, there are people in the church who are unregenerate, who are not saved. And there are people who are unregenerate that do get baptized. And it's not meritorious. It's not efficacious. It doesn't help the individual to get baptized if they don't believe. You might as well just take a bath. You know, it's not this idea that it's doing anything for you. You're really not being a witness. Uh, Was it John Wesley who ended up hearing a message when he was already in the church giving sermons that got saved out of the book of Romans? You know, he sat there and he goes, wow, I'm not even saved. And this guy was doing everything for the Lord and he got saved afterwards. You know, he was in ministry. And then he, wow, he got saved later. So... Unregenerate, And I bet after that, I, I don't know all of his personal testimony, but he probably got baptized. And so, yes? Yes, there would be an unbeliever. Unregenerate means you're not born again. John chapter 3. In order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again, right? Um, five, indifferent. And I think this is probably the worst. Well, defiance is right up there, but indifferent. It's the person who says, whatever. You know, whatever. And that's their attitude with life. Yeah, I'm going to church, but whatever. You know, it's like, do something with your life. It's like a father talking to his son. Do something with your life. Whatever. You know, and that's just their attitude. It's like, come on, just get some backbone to you. You ever have a a child, especially a son, that is just lazy, sleeping in all the time when he's an adolescent, and you go, get up! He goes, whatever, you know, it just, it's kind of like an immature Christian, just apathetic, just doesn't care. 
And so these are the reasons that people don't get baptized. Once somebody hears about it, if they're a follower of Christ, they want to be pleasing to Christ, and so they get water baptized. Now, what does the word baptism mean? It means pouring, sprinkling, or immersion. There is, well, there's several words I could give you, but they're really not going to, uh, they're really not going to help you much. I'll just tell you what they are. Effusion, aspersion, aspersorium, aspergillum, immersion, you know, all these things. If you want to do uh, investigation on baptism, you can do that. You know, there's the baptism with the little sprinkling that you can do like this. There's a little pouring, a little cup that you have, and you can pour it over the head of somebody. I believe that we are to be baptized, and the word is baptizo, and it was used way back by this name, uh, Nicander. And Nicander was spelling this out, and it was 200 B.C. that he used bapto and baptizo in the same explanation. Uh, like when you're taking cucumbers. When you are making cucumbers into pickles, when you're transforming them, there's two things that you have to do. You take a pickle and you temporarily put it in boiling water. You don't leave it there for a long time, and that's bapto. And you take it out. And then you take it from there, and you put it in the mixture inside the jar, which is baptizo, which transforms the cucumber into a pickle. That's what it does. And that is the word that is used in Scripture. And this was written at 200 B.C. So if somebody said in 200 B.C., well, this is what baptizo means. It means you do this. And by the way, baptism doesn't transform you like a cucumber into a pickle. It doesn't do that. But it, but it does mean you completely immerse it and you cover it so it has its effect, so to speak. And being baptized, the effect has already taken place and you're just expressing this to all who are around. And baptism, it, I don't believe it's supposed to be a private affair. John the Baptist, it, Baptist did it where? Where did he baptize people? The Jordan River. People were coming down by the hundreds or even the thousands to get baptized and everybody saw that that this was going on and Jesus did it in front of everybody who was there. And, and so we're supposed to make it like a celebration, get baptized and bring people around and get fully immersed in water, completely wet, wash away all that sin, so to speak. And that's figurative, but, and then come out of the water. And so that is the mode, which is talked about in scripture. If that's not possible, I have no qualms against sprinkling or pouring. I have done that uh, to somebody. And I think I mentioned this at our last baptism somebody who was terminally ill. And we took this individual to the pool and they had some open wounds that were not going to heal. The person died, I think, what, two weeks later, Patty? About two weeks later. And we just took her to the pool and we put her head over the edge of the pool. We supported it and we just poured water over that and everybody was around. We weren't going to dunk her in the water. Everybody knew what it meant. You know, and it would be very harmful for her to be put in the water. So we didn't do it, but she had a desire to be baptized. And so that was what we did. But if you have a choice, if you were able, completely immerse. What is the meaning of water baptism? Well, there's theological views, baptismal regeneration, which means baptism saves you. The Church of Christ teaches this. Baptism does not save you. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God. First Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 21. Uh, the people who believe in this are Roman Catholics and Lutherans. They believe that there is this regeneration process that takes place with baptism. It also can be a sign or a seal of the covenant. And 
as I told you, well, that's true as well. Uh, but mostly the third thing is I believe it's a symbol of our salvation. It's both a sign for the people who see it, who witness it, and that we can talk about it in our testimony later, but it is a symbol of our salvation. It's being buried, dying, being buried and resurrected with Christ. Christ was crucified, was buried in a sepulcher, and he rose again on the third day. That's what it's supposed to represent. It is a symbol of our salvation. It connects us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. John, uh, no, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Don't you know that all of you who are baptized were baptized into Christ's death? We're being baptized to symbolize the death who is there. Who should be baptized? Anybody who is a disciple. That's plain and simple. Uh, Why should we get baptized? Because it's commanded by Christ and the apostles. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some people would say, see, you have to be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. Now, incorrect. Uh, This is, you're getting baptized as a result of the repentance. If you do a study on Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that will come more to light also it's a testimony of true faith and repentance all of those who are truly disciples are going to get baptized those who are obedient disciples are going to be baptized when should we get baptized after receiving christ and i believe it's a confession of faith Uh, that's the next one should children and infants get baptized there's no direct command nor is there a prohibition in scripture If people want to do it, it's for the sake of the parents. It's not for the sake of the children. Does an infant remember that they're being baptized? They have no recollection whatsoever. And in Scripture, baptism always took place after a confession of faith. It did not precede faith, faith in God. It always came afterwards. It's an antecedent. It is not a predicate. It comes after we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if somebody wants to come up and, like in our church, uh, we dedicate babies. We haven't done one in a while, but we dedicate the children and we uh, give a blanket to the individuals and we write out a little card recognizing the day. And that's because Jesus was presented at the temple. Now the reasons for doing that were an Old Testament, the firstborn male is to be brought to the temple and dedicated to God and it goes all the way back to Moses and the Passover and the taking of the firstborn uh, child of the family. And, and so all that is a little bit different than why we do it. We just simply allow the parents to express their faith that they're dedicating their child to the Lord and everybody knows that they're going to raise their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so we just provide a dedication and there's nothing wrong with that. Some might object and say, well, it's not in Scripture. So what? You know, we can do this. We can. You, do you dedicate your life to the Lord? You want to dedicate all your possessions to the Lord? You want to dedicate your family to the Lord? You can dedicate whatever you want. It's just a confession of faith. We just make it a little more special uh, for the children. But once the children get old enough, once they can recite back to you, well, why are you getting baptized? If they turn to you and go, I don't know. Well, maybe you want to put her off a little bit. And if the child says, but I want to get baptized. All right, let's go get baptized. Let's put you in the water. Let's get you completely dunked. And they come out, yay. And then they can say, I got baptized already. But usually when an adult makes the decision, I'm going to follow Christ, they always want to get baptized again. And that's good. 
Let's get them dunked again. Again, there's no prohibition against two or three or four times if you want to do it. If you don't think one of them takes, we just, we'll just get you baptized again. Again, there's no prohibition. How many times do you need to get baptized? Once. Just once. Does water baptism secure my salvation? No, you're not saved by works. It is grace that saves us. Um, baptism is a work, by the way. And those in the Church of Christ would say it's a work of faith, is what they would call it. But Scripture doesn't support that. How going on? Um, I'll give you one Scripture with that. You have Ephesians 2, 8 on your outline there? No? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8. Why was Paul happy that he didn't make or do many baptisms? I got baptized by Paul. Who did you get baptized by? You know, and, and so they, they start putting a hierarchy on who is the most important person to be baptized. Now, what church did that? I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Christ. Corinthians, that's right. And so the Corinthian church, you know, they were a messed up church. And Paul had to correct them left and right in a loving way. But sometimes it wasn't so loving. It was like a slap across the face. You go, oh, oh, man, that one hurt. That's going to leave a mark. You know, but that's, that's what he did. And he corrected them in this, in this being divisive. And so... And it doesn't matter who baptizes you as long as you were the one getting baptized as an expression of faith in Christ and obedience to him. Well, what if I was baptized before I was saved as an infant? Should I get baptized again? Yes, I believe you should. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, it says, it's talked about the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad. You wouldn't even know if it's a good thing to get baptized. And in Deuteronomy, it expresses that. Little kids don't know right and wrong, good and evil, those things. And so we wait until they're a little bit older and we can get them baptized. Uh, then there is, secondly, now that was water baptism. Now there's baptism for the dead. What church practices baptism for the dead? That's correct. It is the Mormons. The Mormons practice that. That's why you have Ancestry.com. And you go, really? Yeah. If you go to Utah, right across from the temple, which does not have any crosses on it, but it does have pentagrams and all kinds of weird symbols. I've been there and I've seen all. Like, what are those things on this temple? Well, if you go right across the street... Across from the compound, you have the tabernacle, you know, the Mormon tabernacle choir. You have their temple. Then you have the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is this domed building. You ever hear of the Mormon tabernacle choir? They sing in there because it's acoustically perfect. At least they say it is. And when they sing in there, it's just like marvelous. You know, it just sounds great. And then you go right across the street and you have Ancestry.com. And you walk in the front doors and they have computer after computer after computer. And you can look up your whole family history and then they have this full library that is in there and you can pull books off and trace people's records and where they came from and what country and you can do all that. I walked in there and I got on the computer and I started doing all 
that stuff? Well, the reason they do that is because you're supposed to look up your ancestors so you can go back over to the temple and you can be baptized in absentia for these individuals, your family members, who have died and somehow earn them credit. You know, it's going to bode well for them. Now, it is mentioned in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized for them? This is not a directive to be baptized for the dead. If you read it in context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is the resurrection chapter. And Paul is making a defense for the resurrection because there are the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection and these Judaizers who some came from the sect of the the Sadducees are going around saying there is no resurrection, there are no angels, none of this is going to take place. When you die, that's the end of story. Uh, It is all done. And Paul was saying, no, this isn't true. And he says, and he makes several cases. He, He makes some points, you know, about uh, the hope that the uh, Jews have placed in God in the resurrection. Then he even goes to the pagans and he says, even the pagans believe in a resurrection. They get baptized for the dead. And he goes on and he makes another argument. And so those people who would say you're supposed to be baptized for the dead are misinterpreting scripture. And they have set up this whole idea of being baptized for the dead off of a misinterpretation of scripture. And so if you run across a Mormon friend, you can say, can we look at this in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine? Can I discuss this with you? You know, I'd like, like to get your understanding of why this happens because I read it completely different than you read it. And so, no, you're not supposed to be baptized for the dead, but it is mentioned in Scripture. So there's water baptism, there's baptism for the dead, then there's a baptism of suffering. This is what Jesus underwent. Many Christians undergo this. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 40. It talks about this. You can go back and read that later. I know there's a lot of them here that I want to get through. But it's this idea. Jesus was fully immersed in suffering. He went to the cross. He was whipped. He was beaten. Probably unrecognizable as just a man. He was beaten so severely. I'm sure both of his eyes were puffy. He had the cat of nine tails, which was being delivered to his torso area, probably to his legs and his arms, and his flesh was just ripped open, and he was bleeding everywhere, and that was suffering. That is persecution. This is what is taking place in the Muslim countries in the 1040 window. The Christians are being killed by the thousands, and you're not hearing about it, but it's taking place right now as we speak. They're killing the Christians and they are undergoing this baptism of suffering to the point of death. Now these guys are being beheaded. These men and women are being beheaded. They're being put in cages in water and the cages are being lowered. They're being drowned. They're being hung. They're being set on fire. All of these things are happening to individuals that are Christians and it's not happening to us here and we are completely detached from that. We need to be praying for them Because this is a difficult baptism to undergo. Now, some people survive this. Pastor Saeed, who is in Iran right now, he's undergoing suffering. He's undergoing a baptism of suffering. It is said that he has been beaten. I think he's diabetic. Isn't he diabetic too? He has some medication he needs to have. I know that. And uh, the medication hasn't always been delivered to him. I I don't know all the details of that, but just certain things that I have heard. And he's part of Calvary Chapel. He's associated with Calvary Chapel. 
And so nothing is being done, even from our country, about his welfare. And so they're undergoing the baptism of suffering, those people in those countries. Then there's these figurative baptisms. <clears throat> A figurative baptism. It, it, well, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under a cloud and that they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is speaking figuratively here. What this means is, if you're baptized into Moses, you're totally immersed into Moses, into everything that he taught, into everything that he directed, into everything that he believed. You are becoming a Moses pickle, so to speak. You are an adherent to what's going on. You pass through the cloud and you pass through the sea, and that would be figurative of death. Either I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear, fear no evil, but you're going into the sea, you're going into the water. It's figurative of leaving Egypt and going into the water and passing out through the other side. That idea of baptism was present in that. So it's all figurative if you start exploring it a little bit, but these baptisms are mentioned in Scripture, and so that's why I'm giving them to you. Then there's the baptism of fire. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, and this is John the Baptist speaking, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we are going to be baptized with fire. Does that appeal to you? <laughs> you know, what is fire? Fire is hot. Fire destroys Fire obliterates. Fire is judgment. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? When will this take place for us? Anybody know? What? Good going. Yes, that is, you get two marks for that one. A couple of stars. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It talks about the reward that we will receive. And we do works down here, and for that we are rewarded with either wood, hay, or stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. And then when the judgment comes to the Bema Seat, which is our reward center, that's where we're going. We're not the great white throne judgment group. We're the Bema Seat of Christ. Every work that we did, if it was from selfish motives, motives that were self-directed, it's just wood, hay, and stubble that we're getting for that. People will go, oh, good going for doing this work. It's so wonderful. Pat on the back, give you a hug, you know, that type of thing. You got your reward. It's wood, hay, and stubble. But if you do something selflessly, if you sacrifice in order to do something for Christ, if you give food to those who are hungry and nobody knows about it and you never tell anybody about it, that's gold, silver, and precious stones. If you go to visit those who are in prison, that's gold, silver, and precious stones. If you take somebody and bind up their wounds and nobody finds out about it, that's gold, silver, and precious stones. If you pray for people and never tell anybody and you're doing it consistently and you're faithful in doing it, that's gold, silver, and precious stones. When you get to heaven, if you've done all that, gold, silver, and precious stones, go ahead, put the fire to it. Nothing happens to it. It's just purified. That's what happens. And you get your reward, and that's your reward. 
And some of us, when we get to heaven, we'll have small little piles of gold, silver, and precious stones. And other people will have these huge piles. And I always like to believe that the uh, individuals who have been in church that are faithful in prayer and they're 90 years old and they're still coming to church and they're walking in on their walkers and they're having assistance of the person that I remember, and only a couple of you will remember this individual, maybe just Patty and I, is the Reverend Willis. Anybody know the Reverend Willis? Anybody ever hear about him? Just you and I, Patty. Reverend Willis was at uh, Calvary Chapel North Park before it was Horizon. And I forget what church he belonged to, but he wore a collar. And he was 90 years old, and he was an intercessor. And Mike took him on, was taking care of him because his wife had died. His wife was alive when we were still there, and she died. And then it was just Reverend Willis, and the church was taking care of him. And Mike would call him out every once in a while, and he'd come out like um, Artie Johnson. Oh, a couple of you remember Artie Johnson, right? <clears throat> From Laugh-In, remember that? He would come out, you know, he'd get out there and he'd get behind the pulpit. He could hardly walk and he'd start praying. And man, you'd just go, whoa. It was like E.F. Hutton. Okay, I know I'm mentioning a lot of things that, yeah, <laughs> that's right. When E.F. Hutton, that was a commercial. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen and there'd be quiet everywhere. So when he would pray, everyone you know, just get real quiet. And he'd pray and you go, wow, that was incredible. That guy's old, but that was incredible. And I think that his piles were just mountainous, that he would go to heaven and just have these mountains of reward for being faithful and serving God all these years. And so that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to save up for ourselves treasures in heaven by doing the good works. And so that's this baptism by fire. That is for us. That's what we're going to experience. And who's going to do it? Jesus Christ is going to do it. Then there's the baptism of the Spirit. Can I handle this in four minutes? I don't think so. Well, I'm going to give it to you. There are three views of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First of all, people are really freaked out by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Very weird things happen with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've seen and got testimony about a couple of them. There are three views. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is equal to water baptism. That's one view. That is not correct. Okay? Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not equal to water baptism. You can put next to that little sentence there, not, in quotes. Highlight it, star it, point arrows to it. Then secondly, the baptism of the Spirit is equal to conversion. This is not true as well. Or it happens at salvation and is part of the conversion process. That you receive the Holy Spirit as a baptismal process when you get saved. The third view of the baptism of the Spirit is it is a second event to salvation. It happens after you get saved. But can it happen at the same time you get saved? The answer is yes. It can happen at the same time you get saved. Now, there are three dangers, and I think I listed those completely for you. We talk a lot of theory about the working of the Spirit without ever letting Him disturb our lives in any significant or creative way. We talk about the Spirit, you know, just, oh, yeah, the, the Spirit did this, the Spirit did that. And by the way, the Spirit is a person, not a force. It's not an it. It is a he. He is a person. And we went through that with the Trinity. <clears throat> but we simply... 
never allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to let him transform us. Secondly, we simply give up because the subject is all too confusing and we push the subject to the edge of our thinking. This deals with the weirdness that people have engaged in when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you a few of those things. Thirdly, there are those who hungrily flock after the emotional experience of the Spirit on which we build our theology regardless of, of, you can cross out that second of, the Bible's teaching, we don't struggle through the issues or the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What that means is it's so weird in some circles, I'm not even going to mess with it. And when somebody starts talking about it, I'm exiting. I'm, I'm just not going to deal with this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing because it's so bizarre in some circles. And then there are those who would say, no, it's just part of salvation. It happens. You don't need to get all freaked out about it. You know, it's not that weird. And God just does it. And, you know, that's the end of it. And since we don't believe that speaking in tongues is for today, you don't have to worry about speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit just kind of moving through you. And so don't be weirded out. And they relegate it to just like water baptism. Just do this as an act of obedience. I don't think any one of these things should be adhered to. I believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that God wants for us. That he wants you to ask for it. And when you ask for it, you get the ability to be a martyr for Christ. And you go, what? That means you possess the ability to actually die. Now, that may mean physically. That may mean spiritually that you divest yourself of your flesh and you're able to serve Christ completely. That's the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to give you the power to accomplish that. And you might say, well, doesn't he give us the power anyhow? Now, this is, this is the next level, so to speak. I believe it is the second experience, and that's the one I hold to is the second event. And I was taught when I became a Christian, first I was taught it's a second event. Then I was taught, no, it's not a second event. Then I found out, no, it is a second event. And it took a while, you know, when one pastor told me that it is a second event and I listened to his teaching on it. And then the second pastor told me no. And he gave me all kinds of articles about it and said, no, it's not a second event. This is what it is. And then I went to a teaching by Pastor Chuck Smith at one of the pastor's conferences and it's a second event. And I go, I'm confused. You know, so I started doing my own research and I've done this several times. I've gone through this idea of the baptism of the spirit. Now, I'm not going to be able to do this justice. And so I'm going to put this off until next week. I think I even have another separate outline for this. I'm going to pick it up what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. But you want it. Okay. Just because it's been weirded out by some sections of Christianity, just like television evangelists. Some of them are just weird, right? And then there's other people on TV. They're like, whoa, that was just dripping with love and wisdom. That was so good. And so you have the same thing with people who teach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to clarify that for you. So uh, any questions about the baptisms that we have so far? You guys are all clear on it, right? Yeah, well... If you wanted to say, okay, I want to be a Jew, I want to have the ceremonies that they had, the ceremonialism, I want to have the temple in Israel, and I want to go commit sacrifice there, well, you'd be baptizing yourself into Moses is what you would be doing. 
it's not meritorious in any way. God doesn't look at that and say, oh, well done. He doesn't say that. He goes, what? I, those things pointed. He would say, those things pointed to me. You don't have to do that anymore. But there were adherents that bought into it fully. And, it, and that's what God wanted at that particular time. So, yeah. And you don't have to go through the Red Sea either. Okay? And you don't have to have the cloud come down in the Shekinah glory and none of that. You got God dwelling inside of you. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it is so clear on these subjects. I pray that you would just give us that clarity. Help us help this subject to be lucid in our minds that we can see as looking through a clean sheet of glass that it would not be distorted in any way, but we'd go away with the simple truths that you have for us. And help us, Lord, to hold on to these, keep them in our memory, that we can pass these truths on to others. And with your help, we can accomplish this. We thank you for your word, and we desire to bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.